You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we are back with a thankfully post-election version of the M Squared TechCast. The ads on my television aren't yelling at me anymore about how the other guy's a bastard. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, the poor people in Georgia. Uh, Oh, (laughs) my God. If we thought we got inundated with political ads, ain't nothing like those people in Georgia are going to get. So, oh yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, everybody's going to be lined up for those two Senate races without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So, but we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start things off with our tech law expert, Enrico Schaefer, or as we sometimes call him here, Enrico Suave. So, <laughs> <laughs> to see you guys so, again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks. Where are you today, by the way? So I'm in the Detroit office. Today, which uh, I guess for everyone is like home, right? And so, yeah, in Detroit these days. Cool. All right, because I know you're you're frequently all over the place with uh, with your clients. So, yeah. Let me let me ask you. I I imagine your travel schedule has been whacked way back too, right? Almost completely, Mike. I mean, I haven't been anywhere since uh, since late February. Uh, so it's oh, been a, been a lockdown situation for me. Courts are doing everything remotely for the most part. So uh, no one's traveling for depositions. Those are all remote. It's uh, the legal system has adjusted fairly well to the remote uh, situation. If you think about it, how much money is spent every year for clients paying for their lawyers to fly all over the place, right? So one of the good things from COVID, that's kind of come to an end. Before we start on what we're going to talk about, so let's follow up on that. Do you think that this is going to be the new norm for the legal, or is there going to be some sort of hybrid in between? It'll be hybrid, but there will. The fact that we've been here, right, means that we're going to end up back here a lot more. And this was the rare exception where you would have a court hearing by you know by phone or or by Zoom. Now it will become the rule, and judges love it too. By the way, sure, yeah. They've got a mute button. They they can have their jammies on under their robes too if they want. So you know, exactly. Of course, I think some of them do anyway. But anyway, um, you wanted to talk uh, um, today about your uh, action against Airbnb on behalf of Airbnb hosts. Sorry. So let's let's get an update on that. Where is where is that uh, lawsuit now? Yeah. So really exciting things going on, as you know, because uh, I think the last interview I did, we were talking about these arbitrations we were filing against Airbnb under the terms of service by hosts who had their payouts diverted and in some cases simply just taken by Airbnb, which uh, simply just acted in its own self-interest. Once COVID hit, it wasn't going to survive. So it basically took all the money that was going between hosts and guests and commandeered a bunch of that for, for itself. In Virtually every platform, as you guys know, there's always a arbitration clause, a class action waiver clause. So we've spent a lot of time trying to understand how we can get around that. And the good news is, based on a lot of the responses we got from Airbnb in these arbitrations, these you know scores of arbitrations that have been filed, we were able to find a legal, viable legal theory to file the class action, which went in last week. 
Um, and so it's a, it's a massive multi-billion dollar class action uh, that is now pending in the Northern District of California federal court. And uh, is yeah, it's been filed by us, and then we we basically interviewed a bunch of class action law firms to partner up with, and we found this great firm, the Gibbs Law Group, uh, who has got all the expertise, resources in the world to go toe to toe with Airbnb. Um, bring my pretty face with their resources, and we think we might have a shot. All right, all right so, so like, oh, go ahead, Matt. No, no, you go ahead, Mike. Uh, so how many uh, clients do you have in your class action suit? Are we talking dozens, hundreds, thousands? Well, hundreds of thousands uh, and perhaps, you know, more. It's hard to tell exactly how many U.S. hosts there are, uh, but it's right now the class definition is all U.S. based hosts. We're looking to expand that to be uh-huh. all hosts globally. But right now in this initial filing, it's all U.S. Clo- hosts. Now, Keep in mind, in a class action, everyone who meets the class definitions automatically included. That's where the hundreds of thousands come from. We've been contacted by hundreds, maybe even you know over a thousand hosts about filing a class action who are now excited about the fact that we've got a court case in play seeking not only to get the money that Airbnb diverted from the payouts, but also to change the terms of service to something that is much more fair and far less unconscionable. And that's a big thing because these platforms, since they draft the terms, they, they think they could like take everything, you know, take everything and your firstborn child. What choice do you have? It's take it or leave it. Right. Right. Um, And then when you get into a dispute, which they say they're, you know, committed to resolving these, you know, efficiently and cheaply and in AAA arbitration, you find out that's not true either. And they're going to fight on every single little thing to the death. Uh, Mm. And so, uh, you know, it's, it needs to change. And a lot of platforms did get the memo years ago, Google, Facebook, all of a sudden they shifted. You might recall like the terms used to be, they could do whatever they want with your data and they don't have to tell you right now. None of that exists. It's all, you have privacy controls. You get to control reminders of control, you know, very detailed terms of service, which say exactly what's going on. You got GDPR in the EU, right? So all of this has flipped on its head to be a user-centric terms of service approach in a lot of these platforms. <clears throat> Airbnb never got the memo, right? There's still say, we'll take your first child if we want to, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. So we're trying to change that for the sharing economy moving forward, just much more fair, reasonable terms of service. Now, tell tell me a little bit about how this has worked for the average Airbnb guest. I'm I'm going to tell you a little personal story here and then try to figure out where that money came from that I later used as Airbnb credits. Right. My wife and I had planned like this epic two-week driving vacation Mm -hmm. where we were going to go from Detroit to Toronto to Montreal to the coast of Maine and then come back through Boston and Niagara Mm -hmm. Falls. Now, the only place we had a regular hotel room anywhere in that trip was Boston. Um, obviously we had to cancel it for one thing. They weren't letting us into Canada. Um, and Airbnb said, well, we'll either give you half your money back in cash or you can have all of it back in Airbnb credit. And we chose the Airbnb credit because we figured we'd use it all eventually. And indeed we have used most of it by now. So where, where did that money come from? It wasn't conjured up out of thin air. I'm a host. It came from me. I paid for your Airbnb (laughs) and that's the problem. So the, the travel credits, we call it the travel credit scam. Because what it was is 
Airbnb didn't have enough money to meet its expenses. It got $2 billion from its, its then investors to, to shore up the ship, but it also needed more money and it had all these upcoming payouts to host. So they, they couldn't make those payouts. And so they said, Hey, uh, you know, guess we're going to give you a full refund. But when you got there, what did you find? You found two choices, accept the cancellation policy that you'd agree to with the host, which said you don't get a refund, right? right. Or take this travel credit, no questions asked from Airbnb. And of course, most guests did that because those, you know, between the two options, that's the better one. The problem with that is Airbnb, by offering that travel credit, simply took the host money and took it for itself. And then it got to hold that money while you waited to use your travel credit, right? So it kept its cash and it was able to move that money from its payment processing arm into its own account. So it used that money to fund itself out. Now you used your credits fairly quickly. A lot of guests have until next year, December, 2021. So Airbnb gets use of all of my money in the meantime, which it diverted, which it had no interest in, right? You may or may not use your travel credit down the line. And if you don't, I get Airbnb keeps that money in which it held as a fiduciary, as an escrow to that transaction. It's just a bridge too far. Yeah. So if there's people watching or either now or on demand and, and want to join into your class action lawsuit, what would they do? So go to traverselegal.com. Traverse is in Traverse City, right? Traverselegal.com. You'll see a link on the homepage for these Airbnb cases. Just get into the system because then we'll keep you up to date about what's happening. And here's the other big news is under the new terms of service that Airbnb came out with last week after we fought them for six months on how terrible their terms were, they came out with new terms. We won. Oh, no. The new terms say we get two of your children. (laughs) <laughs> and no question asked, right? So those new terms come into effect January 20th of 2021. And what we're telling hosts, if you don't file your arbitration claims on these refunds, on these diverted host payouts by then, Airbnb is going to say you're under the new terms, which are even worse than the old terms. So get your arbitration claims filed. You can contact us. We can help you with that as well. Um, the other the other service that I've used to rent um, vacation homes, I've been using them for 20 years or more. Something called VRBO, which stands for Vacation Rental by Owner. Yes. Are, are those terms any better if you're a host for VRBO, yeah. or are they just as bad? No, no. Uh, VRBO, Booking.com, these platforms, for the most part, did not interfere with the rental contract between the host and the guest, to which none of them are a party, right? So you should right. have worked that out with your host. They probably would have given you a travel credit, right? But um, all the other platforms played by the rules. Airbnb, who was supposed to be going IPO in May, decided they were going to take advantage of this uh, to, to, to really level up on their competitors. Because when travel started again, oh, the guests who got that full refund travel credit from Airbnb, well, if it's travel credit, you're going back to Airbnb, right? So they were able to engage in all sorts and all levels of self-dealing by interfering with those rental contracts between hosts and guests. Hmm. Okay. We got about three minutes left. Is there any other hot legal news besides your dog there is getting ready to jump on your couch? But, yeah, that's, that's Cooper. And uh, you know, it's a dog, dog eat dog world. I think that the, the really the other big news out there is that you've got all these um, amazing 
tech companies that seem to be thriving in the midst of COVID, right? And we've seen, you know, certainly a lot of the online uh, retailers, we were really worried as everyone else was when COVID hit, what was going to happen to our clients? And yes, we have clients that are suffering, but the shocking thing is how many clients we have who are just crushing it. And so that I think should be hopeful for all of us, especially with this vaccine news today, right? That the ones that are suffering will be able to come back and the ones who actually are doing better, they'll, they'll be able to build upon that into the future. Okay. All right. So you came to us originally as a drone law expert way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Is there anything new and interesting uh, regarding drone law these days, or has that all been pretty much uh, settled out by the federal regulations that have been in effect? So federal regulations are definitely um, uh, fairly predictable at this point. And so now it, now it's drone service providers who are looking to do more than real estate photography, right? They're looking to deliver things from point A to point B within a hospital system. They're looking to do agricultural spraying. They're liking, looking mm. to do multiple drones from a single controller. And so there's now a path <laughs> for all of those different types of operations through the FAA regulations. But look at drones did get a bump in COVID just from the idea that we may need things coming and going by drone, which is a much safer alternative. So we did see a bump in that market because the, the even after COVID, I think people understand we need th- things like drones to help us when situations like this arise. And we weren't quite there yet on the drone side to be able to go ahead and go to market with a lot of this stuff. Hopefully next time, if there is a next time. Uh, drones will be a big part of the story. Okay, cool. this is the we got to cut you off here. Uh, why don't you one more time give us uh, the address if folks want to reach out to you for drones or Airbnb or any other tech legal issues they go to where? TraverseLegal.com. Enrico Schaefer. You can find me online with a search of Enrico Schaefer uh, or Traverse Legal. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, Enrico Schaefer of Traverse Legal today at the Detroit Bureau with the puppy. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M squared tech cast for right now. It's Matt Roush and Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M squared tech cast at MITechnews.tv and wherever fine podcasts are distributed. As a Lawrence technological university graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more at LTU. Possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. We have with us today a first-time guest on the show. Uh, but certainly we have uh, interviewed many of your predecessors through the years and uh, always been impressed with how the state runs its IT operation. It's uh, Brom Stiggitz. Did I get that right? Uh, Stibitz. Brom Stibitz. Stibitz. Okay, sorry. Okay, wrong uh, wrong consonant. 
Um, listen, why, why don't we start out with uh, you give us a little bit of your background and sort of your career path and how you came to be in this position. Yeah, sure. Well, I've been in state government for about 15 years. Uh, I actually started out working in the legislature, uh, what seemed like a long time ago, uh, as a policy advisor, and I ended up working the uh, last couple of years there uh, for, the, for the speaker from 2008 to 2010. After that, I spent about five years in the state treasury department, um, you know, doing a number of things there, uh, working on, you know, some, uh, some IT initiatives there, as well as culture issues, things like that. And for about the last six years, then, I've been at the Department of Technology Management and Budget. And so I was uh, the, you know, in state government speak, the uh, chief deputy director for, um, you know, until, until the last, uh, say, seven months. And the chief deputy is kind of the COO for the organization. So DTMB is, you know, I'm here because we're the IT department for the state. And that's about two-thirds of our employees and what we do. But we also run a number of <coughs> for the state, uh, including, you know, facilities, procurement, fleet, you know, thing, things like that. So been there. And, you know, in March, uh, early March, the governor uh, appointed me uh, CIO. And about a week later, uh, we, we tried to send about 30,000 people home to work. So trial mm-hmm. by fire, I guess, but I think maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later in the in the conversation. Yeah, let's start off with the latest news, though, for the sixth straight time. Now, I was corrected by Caleb. I thought it was six straight years, but but it's actually the surveys every other year. So essentially, it'd be 12 years. The wow. Center for Digital Government has recognized Michigan with a grade of A, and you're only one of a handful of states. I think Virginia, maybe, and Maryland are in there, too. But uh, but you guys are at the top of the list. Yeah, we are. And, you know, thank you. For giving us some time to talk about this, this is something we're really proud of in Michigan. And for those folks that aren't um, involved in, let's say, public sector or you know aren't familiar with the kind of the state government space in IT, um, this award, this is the most comprehensive review of um, state government IT organizations that there is. And so it really means, you know, we we believe it means a lot to receive an A grade on this. Like you said, there were only five states across the nation that got an A grade this year. Um, like you said, it's done every other year. Is only one one of only two states to have actually gotten an A every time that they've done it six consecutive mm-hmm. times. Utah is the other state uh, that's that's gotten that A six times in a row. So this is something that we're really proud of. And you know, it's um, look, you always like to be recognized um, for the work that you do. Um, but this survey, you know, it's like I said, it's pretty comprehensive. So it looks at um, the things that you've done to support state priorities. Um, it looks at how, what have you done to uh, improve operations? What have you done to, um, you know, help with hard and soft dollar savings benefits? Um, you know, coming up with innovative ideas, citizen-centric services. Um, how do we collaborate? And and the tough thing about the survey is, you know, as much as I can say, you, you know, the, the early years, that was work done by not me and, you know, a lot of, you know, teams before us. So we certainly stand on the shoulders of others. Um, But kind of the cool thing about this is you can't just rest on your laurels. You have to continue to demonstrate that you're making progress. So it's not just, hey, you're still, you know, 99th percentile or whatever. Um, You you know, you have to continue to innovate and to try and drive um, additional uh, benefits from IT um, for doing this. And so, um, you know, as we look at it, uh, what what we heard, you know, I can tell you some of the reasons that they that we got the A grade, but. Before I tell you what 
the Center for Digital Government said, you know, I'm just going to give you my soapbox here for a minute since, uh, since, you're, since you're putting me on your show. And folks that know me are going to be sick of hearing this, but, you know, it comes back to the people. And I think, you know, a lot of people that have worked uh, in IT for a long time uh, know, you know, how many times have you rolled out a, a product that could have been a perfect IT product that did exactly what it was supposed to do? And it maybe not failed, maybe it failed, maybe it didn't do as well because of the people angle. And so we spend a lot of time and effort in DTMB. Like I say, we're a big shop, you know, we're 2000 people in IT alone. So we put a lot of effort into culture. And how do we make sure that we have um, engaged employees? How do we make sure that we have employees who feel empowered to raise their hand and say, I think there's a better way to do this. And, you know, just so that they really have that culture of being a team. And so I would say that's the underpinnings of anything that we're successful at doing is having 2000 people that are working as part of one big team, you know, and, and that they're all engaged. Now, some of the things that we were specifically recognized for this year um, included, uh, you know, we have a, we call it the office of, of continuous improvement. A lot of, a lot of shops have a, you know, let's say a process improvement shop. Um, we actually have two in DTMB, and we have one that's focused primarily on um, on IT-related things. So they're focused on, you know, we have a requirement that says anytime you're going to do any big upgrade or launch any new system, first you have to do a process improvement uh, an initiative around that process. So you're not repaving the cow path, as they say. Let's make sure we have an efficient process before we try to automate it or re-automate it. Um, so that's something that we've really focused on. Um, you know, another thing the state's done and, and people might say, hey, this is kind of geeky or, or whatever, you know, this is like privacy space is maybe kind of a niche thing and people don't. But we, um, the state's actually put a lot of effort into data and privacy. Uh, we require each of our agencies, which are, you know, the state department's kind of subunits of the state. We require them each to actually have a chief data steward. And that when we um, do any work in the IT space, we're, we're giving, you know, putting some effort into understanding the data classification. So that way, when we go out, we're not overbuying from a security perspective, but we're ensuring that we have the appropriate controls in place. Um, and then finally, the last thing I'll say on this is um, we were recognized for some you know, efforts around you know, human-centered design, user experience, things like that. If folks that are familiar with the, um, the new uh, Secretary of State uh, registration system that got launched, uh, recently, or the new um, Department of Natural Resources um, um, system to do hunting and fishing licenses. And so those are both examples of how can you not only build an IT application that does what it's supposed to, but it's, you know, it's actually nice for the for the residents or, or the users to interact with. So, and that's something that we're going to continue to focus more on. Let me ask you, since everybody's gone to virtual because of the COVID, and I, you guys probably have a lot of state employees working from home. It looks like you are as well. What sort of risks does that pose, though? I mean, everybody's the BYOB was the big thing a few years ago. Bring your own device and also bring all your viruses and hackers with you kind of thing. How do you protect yourself from all that? Yeah. Yeah, certainly it's a big it's a big change. Yeah, as you say, I'm coming to you here from the uh, from the from Brahm, the Brahms basement office of uh, of DTMB, and that's where you know I'm guessing we still have roughly thirty thousand uh, state employees that are doing remote work right now. So you know, let's say that's roughly thirty thousand out of fifty thousand. So that's a big deal. That's a big deal from an IT perspective, not only from the angle of 
how do you empower your employees to do that? How do you give them the tools to do it? But as you said, from the security perspective. So, you know, just to start out, as we, like I said, I was appointed CIO probably about a week before um, we, we, we had to do this. Luckily for me, as I said, I've been with the team for a long time. So I had, you know, long relationships with the, all the IT deputies and I've been very involved in this. But, um, you know, so in, in, in some ways we were really well positioned for this, both from an enabling remote work as well as enabling secure remote work, as you say. Um, we had switched over years ago to Office 365 and we had, and when, you know, when you, when you move to a platform like that, you have decisions that you can make around how much security do you want to do? And so we had done things like we had, you know, required MFA um, for that. You know, we certainly, uh, you know, we have a, a privacy uh, approach that is based on, you know, many conditions, some of which is this a state device that's accessing this, uh, you know, this information. So whether it's, whether it's your laptop, desktop, or whether it's a, a state uh, cell phone or smart device, I should say, um, so those are things that we've all done. You know, luckily we had rolled out a lot of the endpoint protections for those so that people could work from home and they could do it in a way that we felt comfortable, um, that it was still secure. You know, so certainly, you know, we, um, you know, there were other things that we had to do to ensure that it was secure. So we didn't, we, we didn't have anywhere near enough VPN licenses or tokens just because people that worked remotely it was like a hey, you know, I'm I'm going to do it this week, or I'm going to do it on a Friday, or, or something like that. And and the vast majority of state employees were not regularly working remotely, but we knew that this was something that there was a demand for. We did have some agencies with people that primarily work remote, and so we did have the capability to do that. But certainly, we had to look at that and say, all right, we're going to need to at least double. Um, our VPN capacity, uh, if we're going to be able to support this so that people can uh, securely connect. Um, and so that was, you know, a bit of a scramble. Um, we knew, you know, we want people to be working on, as I mentioned, state-owned and managed devices. We don't, as a general rule, we don't allow people to work from personal devices. Now there's, you know, periodically you can log into Office 365, let's say, um, but there was a big scramble from us to make sure that we had enough laptops. Because frankly, you know, a lot of people, if you worked in an office setting all the time, you might not have had a laptop. And so, you know, there was that scramble. How do we get laptops? How do we get the VPN set up on all these things? Um, how do we make sure that people know how to use VPN? Frankly, it's easy for us to get it and push it out. Uh, but it's another thing, you know, the end user has to take some uh, initiative there and they have to actually set it up. And so we knew we had a really short timeline to do all this. And so a lot of it was, you know, a lot of it was the tech stuff. How do we make sure that it's there? How can we push it? How can we do these things? But so much of what we did was just training. Like I say, like I said in the very beginning, it comes back to the person. We put together, you know, in a week, we put together training videos. Here's how to set up your VPN. Here's how to um, do your MFA for uh, off of your office products, your Microsoft products, excuse me. Um, we even put out advice for people. How should you manage your home network? Right. That's that's our biggest concern is now people are working on their home networks and we don't control those. So certainly a VPN is a good step. Using MFA is a good step. Um, but we gave, you know, we gave state employees best practices for how you should set up your home network, things like that. I'll tell you the one real upside of of sending everyone home quickly uh, was driving adoption. You know, we certainly we, we moved everyone over to Microsoft Teams like that. You know, whereas that adoption might have taken a year otherwise to get everyone up and running. So, um, so no, we're very comfortable with where we are, and we're starting to look now at 
<clears throat> what does this mean in the future? What does this mean? What does this mean for our brick and mortar facilities? How many offices do we have? You know, how do we potentially use expanded remote work to be able to uh, recruit from a broader pool, et cetera? Yeah, that was, we got about two minutes left. And that was my question I was going to ask is, just like the previous guest, is this the new normal or is there going to be a hybrid model? You only got about a minute. I'm sorry, but uh, go ahead. What no. do you think? No, that's great. Yeah, this that's the that's the big question now, right? Because we're going to need to respond from an IT perspective. State government's going to need to know how to respond from a building's perspective. Uh, you know, if you're asking me, again, I'm not the governor. I'm not the boss of 50,000 state employees, certainly. Um, but if you're asking me, I think that it's going to be, for state government, I suspect that there's going to be kind of a hybrid model. I don't necessarily expect a big move to 100% remote, i.e. you don't have an office, but I certainly expect, just if you look at the trends in the industry, that if, we're, if we want to continue to play in IT and we want to continue to recruit and retain people, um, we're going to need to offer more flexibility and we're going to need to figure out how to um, build and maintain teams when we have people working remotely more often. That, that would be my guess on that. So that's yeah, and I, yeah, and I can tell you, someone who works at a university, and now that the students are accustomed to remote learning, I, I think people are going to be a whole lot more comfortable with it as the years go by. So, hundred percent agree. Take us out, yeah. man. I'm sorry, we're out of time in this segment. Go ahead, Matt. Take us out. Okay. Well, we want to thank our our guest here with us today, Brom from the uh, Department of Technology Management and Budget at the State of Michigan. Thanks for being with us here today. We'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with our weekly visit from our very own Dr. Doom. 
uh, Fred Brown, epidemiologist and infectious disease expert, and we are just waiting to see his pretty face. He has connected with us, and I think we can hear him. Fred, you there? I'm here, but I cannot seem to start my video. It says video failed. Let me try to, uh, maybe I should try to re-sign in. I apologize. Okay. Yeah, go go right ahead. Well, we'll kibitz here for a few minutes. So. Perfect. <laughs> Let's see what I can do. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be real uh, real curious to ask Fred about uh, this this Pfizer vaccine. What I thought what I thought was interesting was uh, is that they didn't take any of the so-called Operation Warp Speed money, although their German partner did take money from the German government. Um, so uh, I just wonder what that's going to mean for availability and distribution and all that kind of thing. I think, I mean, this is going to be the largest logistics project in the history of the human race. You know, getting six billion doses of this thing out there. Of, well, that's assuming that's assuming it's only one dose. Well, yeah, right. It could be and, multiple doses, you know. And if the antibodies don't last very long, you're going to have to. Are we going to have there to keep counts. it? Okay. I say, well, and, and the trial said they used the trial said it was two doses, twenty one days apart. Okay. So, so Fred, let's yes. talk about this. Let's talk about this <laughs> Pfizer vaccine. I'm really yeah. sorry. I've been doing work with transition teams all day today, so I'm sort of <laughs> didn't get much sleep all day yesterday for the well, news. And then we're, we're, glad, we're glad you carved out a half hour for us. We oh, really it's do a pleasure. No, because I know how busy you are. This is a oh. great day, you guys. It really is a truly great. I mean, yesterday was a great day. I, I heard the, the, the news on the DSMB, you know, yesterday and. Wow, what 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 a tremendous breakthrough! Well, once you get through the show, you can treat yourself to a glass of wine. You know, so, <laughs> already had some champagne yeah, last night. Oh, okay, great. great. <laughs> All right, well, we were so the vaccine they're, they're saying in the trial so far, they're saying the vaccine's ninety percent effective. I just heard it's two doses taken twenty one days apart. Do you suppose we're going to know? I mean, how long the the antibodies, the immunity lasts, or or because you know we've heard. Some cases of some people with this thing, they, they don't show any antibodies after six months after they've had it. So that means you have to go get another shot every six months. I mean, what, yeah, what, that's a, you know, what does yeah, it mean? That, there, there are a couple things that we still don't know that we're still trying to figure out, uh, obviously. And, and we're, we're probably going to close out the trial at the end of this month. Uh, so they'll have 164 cases by the end of this month. That's the end of the trial date closed. They may or may not allow Pfizer to continue on. It'd be better if we if we kept everything sealed and uh, and um uh, before we opened up you know, and and revealed everything to the to the sponsor company, uh, just so we have better statistics. Uh, however, you know um, everyone's really eager to to kind of see w- what things really look like in terms of the other end, the, the other endpoints, which include severity of disease, some of the durability questions you're asking, as well as uh, as well as transmissibility and 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 mortality. Which of course we have to wait several probably two two years out to really find out about. But every time you open up the trial, of course, you reduce the, the, the statistical power uh, of that trial. Luckily, we, we did design this uh, trial for power even at 32 uh, cases. Uh, you have to get six cases, and then you can look at the six cases and um, every 32 every every 32 infections you've got. So we should be having quite a few in- infections to take a look at, uh, and hopefully they'll, they'll let us open it up at 164. Well, certainly Wall Street was excited. Last I looked, it was up like 2,000 points or something, you know, so... Uh... People are yeah. making money today uh, in, in New York. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you. Yeah, I, I, I had my doubts. Uh, I, you know, and, and we all did in the, in, in the community about Operation Warp Speed. Uh, we were doing a lot of things that w- that kind of violated um, the traditional rules uh, and uh, about 
what was normally done in clinical trials. My, my guess is we saved probably close to um, about 200 days in, in, in research, basic research, and we probably saved about three years in clinical development. And that's mm. about, you know, that, that's, that's almost four years of excess deaths at 400,000 a year projected, right? So that's mm-hmm. 1.6 million people. I, I, if, if Wall Street wants to make some money on that, <laughs> you know, more power to them because we saved a lot of lives if, this is, if we really pulled this thing off. We're not 100% sure yet, but if we pull this off, it is it is a, a remark. It's, it's actually kind of a dawn of a new age in medicine. It's a dawn of synthetic vaccines, a dawn of, of, of being able to, you know, <laughs> predictably inject new proteins, uh, uh, new protein machinery into your cells, uh, you know, uh, which could solve all sorts of additional disease states, uh, including, uh, you know, gosh, uh, cystic fibrosis, among many others. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is remarkable. Uh, the mRNA is playing this way. Basically, what we've done is we've overtaken what the way bacteria infect us, and we've put that into our capabilities now. Uh, okay. almost predictably, which is remarkable. So the other the other big question I wanted to ask you, obviously, with Saturday's call of the election, you know, barring a Hail Mary from some lawsuit and, and Hail Marys only work against the Detroit Lions, right? So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's oh, poor <laughs> so, so, I mean, assuming there is a Biden administration, what do, what do you think is going to change in the management of this of this pandemic uh, come January 20th? Well, you know, uh, gosh, if, if we have the 90% effective vaccine with the backstop, the heavy lifting's been done, frankly. I mean, that, that is just huge change in our capability, huge change in our policy capabilities. Uh, it means that, you know, we can, we sort of have a light at the end of the tunnel, if you think about it. So before, we didn't know how long this period of, of, of partial vac- vaccine was going to be, um, and how much the, 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 how partial the vaccine would be, and how long that, 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 that period would last. Uh, now that we know, now that we have potentially a backstop, and it becomes much more uh, a controllable, maybe even preventable vaccination-based disease, um, that that means that we could potentially do a lot more in the short term to shore up people, knowing that we only have a certain amount of time <laughs> remaining. Right? All of a sudden, your 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 whole philosophy about gosh, how much more, more stimulus do we have to put into the economy? How much more uh, are we going to have to hold off with? PPE and, and community manufacturing, how much more are we going to have to expand our capabilities for surge capacity in healthcare? All those things pull money away from the, the more productive parts of the economy. And so, um, you know, on the economic front, we're talking about a much faster route to recovery than, than I was projecting. I, I thought it would be early as 2023, mid-2023. It may be a year earlier than that uh, for full economic recovery. Um, and, you know, our vaccination, um, you know, by vaccinating this many people, we may hit herd immunity already uh, by mid 2022. Now, there's a big if there, and that is, believe it or not, um, even though even with 90% effectiveness of a vaccine, if only right now 30% of people are going to take that vaccine, and with, with the potential of, of 20% more joining that, the people who are questioning whether the vaccine is going to be safe and and effective. Um, if you do the, all the math, you know, that's only 45% control, right? 50% times 90%, 45% control. So the now the communication has to be, you know, trust the science, look at the results. And I have I have I did put a couple of, of things together actually. If you're interested, I could show them quickly. Sure, uh, or, or we can just talk about the the I mean the, 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 the day. But there's 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 a couple of things that might might be helpful uh, to, to to share. 
Um, and let me see if I can pull something up here that might be interesting for you guys to look at. Um, this one, I think. Well, well so can you see my screen all right? Now we can. Perfect. So here's sort of the way it looks like it may roll out. Um, and I just need to get to a slideshow here. So uh, it looks like we're going to have first dose in man, uh, you know, uh, on an EUA basis, probably around January 1st, maybe even a, a week or two earlier than this, which means you get the second dose 21 days later. So, you know, you're into the first group of, say, by the end of February, the first 20 million people will be injected um, uh, in a series that's going to go from basically uh, January until early, probably about mid-March. Now, if you think about it, you have to have a second dose 21 days later, and then you get immunogenicity. Actually, that, that was faster than I thought, too. Immunogenicity actually occurs seven days after the second dose. So all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're looking at kind of a uh, mid to late March initial impact of the vaccine. Now, it's only 20 million people, so it's less than 5%, less than 6% of the population. So we've got a long way to go in terms of vaccination. Um, What's interesting is that uh, Johnson & Johnson uh, comes through probably with a, uh, a, a vaccine that's vector-based. Now, we don't know anything about, um, about how safe uh, and effective the vector is yet. We do know that it was shut down. They shut it down themselves. It wasn't shut down by the, by the FDA. It was not put on what they call clinical hold. It was just you know, paused, what they call paused, a clinical pause by the, by the sponsor, which is J&J. So due to safety reasons, they seem to overcome those, uh, as well as AstraZeneca. Now, the, the, the important thing about, about AstraZeneca and J&J is that, that they have a lot more capacity than Pfizer does, a lot more. Uh, and if you only have to have one dose before you get immunogenicity, you're, you miss that 21 day plus the seven days. So you're missing a, a whole month. You're getting to, to immunogenicity a month faster. Plus they don't have the cold chain requirements, uh, that, that this thing, that, 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 uh, Pfizer does, which is a minus 70. So you can see that we're projecting, uh, 200,000 cases a day, uh, kind of around, around January 12th, 15th, I think it's going to probably peak. But I mean, that's a lot of cases to start from, right? Uh, and wow. and so we've got a long, we still have a long haul this fall. But then we're going to start to see probably, uh, as uh, this chart shows, by October, November, uh, maybe 120 million people, in, in you know, with the, with with some uh, immunogenicity from the vaccine, and that will actually slow the vaccine down. And so we could drop, you know, uh, for next fall this time, we could be, you know, w well, even even below 100,000 cases a day, even despite the peaking that we're having already, and 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 the, and the th Thanksgiving and Christmas threats that we're, that we'll face next year at this time. So we could literally have the number of of, of issues that we're having right now with COVID by uh, this time next year. And certainly, um, hopefully by Easter next year, we're talking about getting to a point where normalcy, at least social normalcy, economic normalcy, uh, is likely to be back. Maybe not complete health normalcy, because again, it depends so much on how many people take this vaccine. Which brings me to my question is, yes. uh, how are the, is it going to be the, the, the frontline workers get it first and then the senior citizens get it next? Or how are they going to play that out? That is a great question. So, uh, and believe it or not, um, it the answer to this changed because of the level of efficacy we're seeing. Um, we have checked safety, but originally, um, oh, this is the wrong chart. Ah, uh, I, anyway, uh, the right uh, the blue the blue dot should say six percent, 
So 6% of the, of the vaccines will be uh, generated by, I, I should say, April. I should have this. I have this on a different slide. I apologize. By April, six uh, percent of the population will be vaccinated. By um, by September, uh, approximately thirty three percent of the of of the, uh, of the of the population will be uh, vaccinated. Then we'll have uh, about twenty seven percent of the population done between um, uh, kind of fifteenth of September. Uh, through the first of of January, and then everyone else, like 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 myself, who are between eighteen and sixty four, that's forty two percent of the population will probably be you know vaccinated after next Thanksgiving. That's the way it's going to roll out. Now, the reason that that the, the number changes between now and uh, and before we knew what the efficacy was is because if the better the efficacy is, the more you actually want to uh, protect your most vulnerable. So in the past, we thought that efficacy was only about 60 to 70%. If you do all the math, it turns out that when you have 60 to 70%, the right, pe- the right people to inject are the, are the ones who are most likely tr- to transmit. And those are, and then get sick. So those are the frontline healthcare workers, which is why the original NAM, the National Association of Medicine recommendations were for uh, going after healthcare workers because we thought they'd be transmitting. Now that we know that efficacy may be as high as ninety percent, and that the and, and especially Moderna vaccine will be safe for elderly, they they actually have a larger elderly population in their in their population than, than Pfizer did, on a percent basis. Um, now that we know something more about that, it, it 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 it's very likely that we'll actually be vaccinating a lot more of those who are over sixty five and have at least one comorbid morbid uh, condition that is likely to have a bad uh, a bad outcome if they were to contract COVID. Because we want to try to save as many of those uh, very at risk people as possible, uh, uh, because it's so effective. Uh, so if you, uh, anyway, that that's how the way the math works. And so this chart is now wrong <laughs> because we will now change all of our numbers based on a new efficacy number. So I, I did change all those numbers for you, and and I sadly opened the wrong the wrong file. So, uh, but uh, that that, that the, the numbers I read off six uh, percent moving to twenty five percent, moving to another. Uh, uh, 27% and then the 42% at the end is correct. And the timing is earlier now uh, that that 6% will be done uh, April 1st, the uh, 25% additionally will be additionally be uh, the, the phase green phase two will be done around September uh, phase gray will be done around uh, Thanksgiving of next year. And then uh, the rest of us will all get our vaccines uh, uh, probably uh, late 2022. Uh, uh, tw- I'm sorry, late 2021 to early 2022. So that's that's that. So, that, but there's but there's multiple vaccines that'll be out there. It won't just be the Pfizer. It'll be what, yes, a lot of them, right? You know. So. Yeah. So basically, we've got we've probably well now, you know, we shouldn't get too excited, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I'm a technologist, so I, I love this stuff. But it, but I think Moderna is likely to come through two weeks after Pfizer. That's about how long, how how much they're they're delayed. They have another. Um, uh, I'll show you quickly who who's all coming out uh, here. Here's the coming out. Here you got Pfizer. You can see that they've got the ability to make slightly about about a slightly more than a billion doses, about 1.2 billion doses a year, uh, right now. Now they're going to escalate from that. Moderna has about uh, the ability to make a billion doses a year. Those both use the same technology. That's, that's the mRNA technology, as you know. Um, and the problem with these uh, va- these vaccines is that they are very difficult to ship. Um, 
and, and scale. Uh, so basically, Moderna and Pfizer uh, solutions are basically an OECD or uh, organization. Uh, uh, the, the, these are for advanced countries who can actually transport a minus and, and succeed in a minus 70 degree environment. Um, what's interesting is you see that the scale of AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca has a capability to do 6 billion doses a year. Wow. Vector-based vaccine. They're, they're going to they're gonna be able to close out their studies by the end of the year. Now, the vector-based vaccines have a much more challenging safety profile in some ways uh, than Moderna and Pfizer now that we know that they're so efficacious. Um, but they, you know, traditionally, um, these vector-based vaccines are quite a bit more a- a- efficacious because it inv- they're much more likely to stimulate the, B- the, the T cells. The T cells are much better for durability uh, and for uh uh, the, the T cells actually neutralize the uh, uh, much better have a much better neutralizing capability. You, so you can see AstraZeneca, J and J, and Russia and Merck are all coming through with vector-based vaccines. The reason that Merck's is so interesting is they've got a capacity of almost three billion vaccines a year, and it's an internasal spray. So we may actually see some improved efficacy uh, and a, a much better transportability than 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 an intramuscular vaccine. And then uh, you see Novavax and Sanofi. They'll be opening up their um, uh, Novavax uh, said uh, early 2021. Uh, now these are the, you can see that, that they're working with uh, Takeda, so they've got about a two billion vaccine capacity, uh, and they all and they could also add to the mix, and that'll be a different kind of profile vaccine. The way we look at vaccines uh, is basically along these four four parameters, right? You look at safety. You look at f- f- effectiveness, you look at scalability, and you look at durability. So we were looking at scalability. So, uh, how, how easy is it to get big? And the answer is, if you already have existing manufacturing capacity of 6 billion doses like AstraZeneca does, <clears throat> if it comes through, it's a huge impact. If it fails, it's also a huge impact because it means we're not going to get to our 13 billion doses. It's, all, it's almost half the worldwide capacity we're looking at. We have to wait for in, an Indian producer to come through for us at that level of vaccine capability. But if you look at safety, here are some of the things, you, you know, so we haven't opened the, 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 we don't know the answer yet. I mean, there's only 13 people in the world that actually know these, the answers. Are the, that's the, uh, the, the, the review board uh, that looked at this um, and opened up the data sets. So the, when this data becomes open, there's some questions you should ask yourself about which vaccine is going to be the best for you, right? The first question is about safety, because you don't want to take something that's going to get you, you know, put you over the over the hump in terms of an adverse event that, that could be worse than the disease itself. And so you want to look at the absolute level of serious adverse events. And they rank serious adverse events on a scale of one to five based on whether or not you've had to go to the doctor, how bad the uh, adverse event is. If you have to go see a doctor, you're at a four or five. Most of the adverse events um, that have come through are, are three or less, but they are significant, especially after that second dose uh, for Pfizer. You really get sh- shakes, chills, fevers. Uh, it's, uh, it's one or two days of being out. And if we have to do this every six months, as Matt said, or every year because it's not terribly durable, people are going to start to say, God, I don't know if I want to go through that again. <laughs> well, I don't know, you know, but basically, that's going to be your ticket to go see grandmother. It's going to be your ticket to go on the air flights. It's going to be your ticket to go uh, on cruise ships. It's going to be valuable. Um, so maybe every, every six months is okay. It's also going to be, you know, reasonably expensive, you know, 20 bucks a shot, 
um, which for some people you know, start to add up if you're doing it quite often. Um, the next question is how inclusive was the trial, right? So how how impactful was the inclusion exclusion criteria of the trial? Did they start to exclude people who weren't like you? Did they start to exclude uh, certain populations who were elderly, had condition, uh, had special conditions? And you'll see that there weren't any people who were tested, for example, who were under the age of twelve. You, no, no, no one's been tested yet uh, who uh, is, is, is getting dialysis. No one's been tested yet for people who are immunocompromised and, on, and those kinds of uh, 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 cancer chemotherapy treatments. Uh, no pregnant females have been uh, you know, uh, uh, injected or people who are thinking about getting pregnant. So those people have been excluded. So if you're in that group, you want to say, ah, you know, maybe this one is, I'll, I'll wait. You know, I'll wait till I, I get I get right. And then if you got broad demographic eligibility, here the question is the region of the country, which uh, vaccine strains you're looking at, uh, uh, and so on, right? And then you want to make sure that they have low thresholds and types of adverse events they were actually tracking and looking and, and, and put into their statistical tables or something that is, is meaningful for you. And then how long did they have the safety data? Now, we will have two-month safety data. In other words, half of the population who's been injected will have, have gone through at least two months of of, a, of, of looking and, and observing. These people who are on these trials actually have a, a phone and they report in how they're feeling every couple of days on their, uh, uh, what they call patient-reported outcome uh, system. Uh, if you have an adverse event or not feeling good, you report it immediately because uh, that's especially important because if you come down with a symptom of COVID, they want to know that and put you into uh, uh, into the study of saying, hey, we may be able to prove efficacy here if you weren't injected with the real uh, vaccine. So um, what's interesting about the duration of safety is normally, you know, for this kinds of vaccines, we would take, we would probably take a year to two, to two years of, um, of looking at safety before we made it broad, broadly available to everybody if they're welcome. Um, in this case, we'll only have two months. Now, usually most safety profile problems come in after 42 days. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, we'll have 60 days. Um, but the WHO wants 90 days. So most of the rest of the world will wait until they have 90 days of safety data before they take this vaccine. We'll, we'll do it at, at, at after 60. Uh, so you may want to wait a little while longer, make sure the safety data is coming through, it, and, you know, and because and, we're only looking at 164 patients so far uh, who, are, <laughs> <laughs> who are actually you know, testing positive uh, at the end of the t- trial. Th- then uh, effectiveness, you know, uh, you want to take a look at the effectiveness que- uh, question. And uh, did, you know, one of the questions is, did, did it reduce the severity and the duration of the symptoms? So how severe your symptoms were, um, if we're able to get those down, we can actually reduce hospitalizations. And that's significant because right now, 10 of our states um, have more hospitalizations than they've had ever before today, uh, than ever before so far in the nine months we've had this disease. Um, you know, we've got 10 million active cases right now. Uh, that's a lot to work with. And if all those people start going to the hospital because you didn't reduce severity, that's going to be uh, an issue. And it could overwhelm the, uh, the health system and cause excess, huge amounts of excess death, as we know. So that that endpoint, that what they call clinical endpoint, is really critical. Um, the reduction of transmission is, an, is even more important because if you're able to reduce transmission of the virus, you actually have a logarithmic effect, a logarithmic impact on the transmission of the disease and the expansion of the disease. If you don't do that and all you do is reduce the symptomology, then you still have the same transmission. Um, you still can start to get to those uh, those very uh, vulnerable populations pretty easily. So that's going to be important. And then, the, you know, of course, the baseline and the thresholds uh, in the trial are really going to be important. So those those are the safety efficacy pieces that we'll, we'll start to get to know quite a bit by the end of this month. Scalability. Um, 
don't forget the um, the uh, this this drug will only be available uh, at, at the, the Pfizer vaccine will only be available um, uh, to the to, you know to portions of the U.S. because of the cold chain. Uh, they only have a billion doses uh, a year manufactured. We need 13 billion on a global basis. Uh, we'll only have the first 100 million doses for free. After that, it's going to become uh, uh, charged. Uh, you know, it'll be charged as much as we we contracted for. Um, and uh, we want you know the booster shot is going to be a significant question. How durable this is, and and whether we need to, because if you if you think about it, if you need a booster, it means you actually have you've halved your capacity, right? So when 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 J and J comes by and says we've got an ability to make a billion doses, that's a billion vaccinations that are done. When Moderna says that, it's only half a billion doses that are done. That, that booster shot really makes a big impact. And then of course the durability. Uh, do you have per, per, you know, persistent high titer levels of neutralizing antibodies? We'll, we'll start to know that uh, over the course of a year or two. Uh, that's going to take. Uh, we've got a clo- we've got a. Uh, uh, the, 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 these, these, these studies continue on uh, and have uh, review points at day 365 and day 700 and 20, whatever it is, <laughs> one year and two year uh, basis after, the, uh, after you've taken the vaccine. We'll have those data at that point. And you, one of the questions that uh, people bring up uh, who some people have allergic reactions to adjuvants, uh, a number of these, uh, like Moderna, like Pfizer, those disease, those those vaccines do require adjuvants. Um, so you know, if you if you have if you have allergic reactions, some of the mercuric, the, the, the mercuric, uh, uh, and and other adjuvants they put in, uh, then you might want to uh, watch that as well. So that's some of the things to think about when you see the clinical trial results when they start to come out at the end of the month. You'll see uh, Pfizer's full results. You'll see Moderna by by the end of this this month. See Pfizer's full results, you'll see Moderna's interim results. You will see um, in January uh, uh, AstraZeneca's interim results, J&J's interim results by the end of January, and then you'll start to see Novavax and Sanofi uh, and Merck's uh, interim results uh, in March, April. That, 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 that's a lot of vaccines coming through the pipeline. Okay, we got about in, in the meantime... Yeah, in the meantime, we dare not let down our guard, though, right? In terms of social no, distancing, please. And all that yeah, stuff. Uh, it's a great reason to celebrate, but we won't have we this. This will not be an impact that's felt this year. It'll be an impact that's felt, uh, as I said, probably starting this time next year. So we're celebrating now, but be careful all the way through this time next year, at least uh, with with NPI, with continued distancing, uh, with with with. Uh, with uh, hygiene and hand washing, those are are really what we have to offer at this point. And and vaccines coming, which is great news. All right. Well, we got about a minute left. Uh, so, Fred, how do people reach out to you if they want to get more information? Oh, and you alluded to being on a transition team. There's only one transition I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. So, does that mean you're going to be working with the Biden administration? Well, I, I don't put myself in any particular administration. I've been, I've been trying to help out any, every administration, but uh, I, I'm, I, I, I am trying to help um, you know, a, a, a number of governments who are trying to transition right now uh, at the state and, 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 and national level. And, and, and yes, you know, to the extent that I can help the U.S. nationally, I'd love to do it. Frankly, some of our states are, are going to have bigger challenges than the national uh, government just because they're going to be responsible for ultimately deciding who gets the vaccine in their states. The national government will say, here's your vaccines, and the states will have to actually distribute. And those, those systems and those capabilities are challenged in a lot of states. Okay. Take us out, man. 
All right. Well, we want to thank Fred Brown, our epidemiology expert, and all of our guests today. We uh, started off the show with Enrico Schaefer, and uh, we also had with us, oh gosh, I blank it on his name, Mike. Brown Yes. He's the CIO of Michigan State Government and a very good guest and a very interesting segment about how they made the shift uh, to uh, virtual uh, workplaces. So we'll be back next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you've been listening to the M Squared TechCast.